Today on The Black Goat, we talk about Grexit, the movement to drop the GRE from graduate school admissions procedures, and a letter about when undergraduates should be included as authors on papers. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And Samin is very far away from us. She is in Australia right now. And uh, it sounds like you've been having some adventures lately exploring Australia. Yeah, it's been fun. It's summer here. I'm only here for a few weeks. I haven't moved here yet. But um, uh, I, my boyfriend has a paddleboard. And so we've been paddleboarding a bit in different places. And the first time we went, so we take turns because we have one, he saw a bunch of dolphins and I was like, I had just paddleboard in the same area. And so I was really upset that he saw the dolphins and I didn't. But then the next time when I went out, a dolphin came right up next to me and like swam along next to my paddleboard for like a few seconds. That's honestly the craziest thing I've ever It was awesome. Yeah, it was a very small dolphin. And then a jet ski came and like the dolphin was gone. It was really annoying. And it almost knocked me off the paddleboard. Um, The jet ski or the dolphin did? The jet ski, yeah. I, I was wondering, like, if the dolphin would, like, hit the paddleboard or what would happen. If it was, mm-hmm. like, if it knew to avoid it. And also, if I fell in with the dolphin, I assume it would be fine. Right? Dolphins are nice. They're, apparently, they're, I mean, they're not. Like, I, yeah, I've heard <laughs> that they're, they're really jerks. Yeah, there oh, is really? this... Uh, but I don't think they, like, harass humans, do they? Uh, yeah, no. I think it's it's other, other dolphins and other animals. But, yeah, there was this thing that was going around social media a couple of years ago that was basically, like dolphins are assholes and, and it was like all this like real stuff from animal behavior about they like they torture other animals and they like they're assholes to <laughs> each other and just like all this like awful shit that they do oh, um yeah yeah well but, it was cute yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's a lesson in there somewhere it. you know mm-hmm. like yeah yeah if you're cute you can well with especially because yeah so then yesterday i was paddleboarding in a river near the ocean and then high tide came in and all of a sudden like literally within like 10 seconds it went from like there had been a jellyfish here or there to like it was a sea of jellyfish just like so many jellyfish it was unbelievable and i was probably a little freaked out and so then i ran over one a pretty big one and it hit the fin of the paddleboard and i heard a thud and I think probably it didn't actually destabilize me. Probably I was just like freaked out. And so I wobbled and I fell off. Oh, and the no. kept going. And so I had to hold on to the oar and like swim back to the paddleboard and get on. Luckily, they must have been not the stinging kind of jellyfish because I must have swam through like a dozen or more of them. I was going to say, like, are you covered in, in no. Um, no, they didn't jellyfish think. stings? But oh. I got, so I got back on. <laughs> yeah. How is it possible that Australia has like every fucking thing in Australia is poisonous or deadly or something? And the, but the, the the Australian jellyfish is like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, they they do have stinging jellyfish, but I guess these weren't those. Um, so I got back on, but then I'm like in a sea of jellyfish, and now I'm convinced that like they can knock me over, and yeah, so it's pretty freaky. And I'm soaking wet. I was in my clothes. I didn't change into my swimsuit because I'd gotten overconfident that like I'm not gonna. <laughs> I, I paddled next to a dolphin and a jet ski came and I stayed on. Yeah. The jellyfish. That was pretty like, embarrassing. Yeah, we're, we'll show you. See, the, the yeah. j- jellyfish, these are like nice jellyfish, but since they're jellyfish, they're sort of like slimy and gross. They, it's the cute thing <laughs> upside down, right? Yeah. Like they don't get any credit. 
Yeah, yeah. they were really cool looking, actually, but, but very creepy. And also it was like dusk and yeah, just everything about the situation was creepy. I got, mm-hmm. I think I got stung by a jellyfish once because um, I was swimming. We were, we were on vacation in Greece and I was swimming and there were jellyfish around. And all of a sudden I just felt this like, honestly, like it, it felt like I got hit by a baseball bat, like not the force, but just the sting, the, the like the sudden onset of pain. And, and like, I yelled out loud and my friends were like laughing at me. They're like, what, what the fuck are you? And I was like something. And I went back and I had this like welt on my back. And it lasted like almost a year. Like you could see wow. this. It was. It looked kind of like a bruise, and it was like painful for the next day and whatever. So I mean, it might have been some other. Who knows? What, you know, I don't know. Like a st- I, probably not a stingray. I think that would have been even worse. But uh, it was not a pleasant experience. Mm. Yeah, I was um, jealous of my brother recently because so my brother has moved from Toronto to a place called Kirkland Lake, which is a very small town. I think maybe like six hours north of Toronto. Um, So really like in the boonies of Ontario where it's like cold. Actually, I got him snowshoes for Christmas because he legitimately may need snowshoes to like get around, like to go for a walk. Um, But he saw a moose and I've never seen a moose before, but I feel like um, I feel like as a Canadian, I should see a moose at some point in my life. And he said that it was like really cool and way bigger than he expected, which is I think how people usually respond to seeing moose. I've seen moose in in Alaska. Yeah, they were amazing. Is moose the plural of moose or is it mooses? It can't be mooses. Moose. (laughs) (laughs) What was the uh, What was the cartoon when we were kids? It was like it was about uh, mice, but it was like I hate you, mooses to pieces. Who was the There was some cartoon character that that was like their catchphrase or something. Um, I I, I assume it was a cartoon cat if it hated mice, but uh, anyway. Listeners, if you know if you know what I hate you Mises to pieces comes from, please tweet at the black or blackout pod because I am now I'm like super curious. Or if you know the plural of moose. Yeah. Um, when so when I studied abroad in Samoa for four months, at the beginning they gave us this like crash course on like ocean safety, and I don't remember which animals, but some animals if you get stung by them in the ocean, you're supposed to pee on it. Uh huh. Assume you didn't try that. I guess you can't pee on your own back, but. I've heard that about. Uh, I think you I've can't pee on your own back. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually now I'm. Th- oh, I don't. Anyway, let's not. <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out. Like, is that? Could I? That was. Anyway. <laughs> I'll pee on your back if you pee on my back. Yeah. The expression, right? I, I'm trying to remember when I got stung by the jellyfish. I definitely did not ask any of my friends to pee on my back. I don't know if I didn't know that or if I knew it and was just like, there's no way I'm asking it. someone to yeah. pee on me. <laughs> maybe that well would have only lasted for like a day and a half. Yeah, 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 maybe. Who knows? Would it have been worth it? I don't know. That's that's like, actually, that's a that's a good, this, this sounds like one of those like party game questions, you know, like, it's like, yeah. fuck, marry, kill. It's like, yeah. how how bad would something have to be to let your friend pee on you? And I'm actually, I'm honestly not sure if this jellyfish sting, like if, if, if I like play it back in my mind, and I'm like, all right, somebody pee on me. Like, I don't know that that would have been worth it. I think, I think we, we might be different, Sanjay. I don't think my bar would be that. Well, on your back too. For some reason it feels like if it was on my like foot, yeah, being on a foot is more okay. Yeah, but like... <laughs> okay, all right. Like on your back? <laughs> it just, it feels more, I don't know. 
I think I'd be okay with a man peeing on my back, but a woman, like, she'd have to squat and get so close. I think that would make me It's my, like, new life goal for Samin to get into a situation where she needs to ask me to pee on her back. (laughs) Well, apparently Australia's no good because the jellyfish don't sting you down there. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Samin's going to start getting suspicious when I, like, invite her to go on vacation to this tropical location. Uh, well, uh, maybe that's a good uh, <laughs> maybe that's a good point segue? to segue to the next topic. Um, should we do our letter, you guys? Speaking of yeah. peeing on people's backs, um, the letter begins: "Hi, Black Goat Pod." My question is specifically about graduate admissions and the emerging practice of putting undergraduate students on manuscripts. I'm applying to graduate programs right now, and I know several people, myself included, who have benefited tremendously from the generosity of an advisor who made the student second, third, or fourth author on papers. This happens even if the student was only somewhat involved in writing the introduction or discussion, but otherwise had no substantive involvement in the design, theory, or data analysis. From what I understand, this is very different from 20 to 30 years ago, where people may have only had a couple of publications before going on the job market. Now it seems as though you need a publication to get into grad school. Of course, advisors have the best intentions by making their students stand out as an applicant, but I wonder if this does more harm than good. For example, does this create an impossibly high bar for graduate applicants? Does it maintain inequity based on sheer luck or even systemic problems? Does this reinforce harmful incentive structures that value producing an unrealistic number of publications, even at a very early career stage? Does it potentially cheapen what it means to be an author on a published paper? Best, anonymous. So, I mean, I really like this letter. I feel like the the letter writer poses a lot of interesting questions that we could probably talk about um, for a long time. Um, I find this question a little easier to answer if we focus on this the situation that this letter writer describes in which an undergraduate is made an author on a paper when they had fairly little involvement in the paper. So I think it's a little less controversial when I've had undergraduate students who are honor students in my lab or something like that, and they play a really big role in a project, and they clearly deserve authorship on a paper, and I think um, no one would contest that. Um, but I think the situation that the person is describing here is a situation where maybe uh, a faculty member wants to give an undergraduate a leg up when applying to graduate school, and so sort of like tosses them a bone when it comes to giving them a small role in um, being on a paper in exchange for authorship, um, which I guess is a little bit more controversial as the author notes, despite the fact that they say that they were, um, they've benefited from this practice too. Um, yeah. I'm curious whether if you were looking at applications from graduate students, if someone having a middle author, like second, third or fourth out of say five, um, publication would matter for you guys or how it would compare to say being first author on a poster at a regional conference or something like that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that I think that I would interpret somebody being like a middle author on a manuscript as more an indication of the lab that they came from um, than of their experience with. But then again, I don't know. I mean, it it might suggest to me that they've had more involvement in the entire research process than somebody who like doesn't have, well, surely than somebody who has nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody who's a first author on a poster, I would, I would see that as a, 
as a pretty big accomplishment for an undergrad. Yeah, I think I, I think I feel similar. Like I, I would, I would sort of view that in the context of what the statement in the letters say that they've actually done. Um, because, you know, we've talked about, I think when we've talked about authorship before, like, I mean, middle author can be very ambiguous and, you know, the, the whole idea of moving to contributorship rather than authorship is trying to get at this idea. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, like I, it's an interesting question because, you know, I would like to believe that what I'm ultimately gauging is, you know, like actual potential to be a researcher. And if they have research experience, then that's a, you know, they've had this opportunity to demonstrate that at blah, blah, blah. And that the the paper needs to sort of fit into that story. It, but it's, you know, it's an interesting question whether, you know, that biases you, whether that's a heuristic, um, you know, that, that when you see that, like, can you really de-bias yourself? Um, I don't know. I, I yeah, I, I think I often... I don't go looking for that first. Like I don't go flipping through the application looking to see if they have papers. Um, I think some people maybe do or, or put that higher up on the chain. So I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure how representative I am. Do you, do you guys encourage undergrads to be authors on papers and do you have sort of like a, a level at which they need to contribute before you would include them? So I mean, the reason I asked the question I did is because we focus more on things like posters. So, like, if a, if we have a really mm-hmm. promising undergrad who's really interested in the same area that we work on, we have many, many research assistants working on our main project because we do audio coding. Mm-hmm. So, like, the ones who really stand out and we want to give them, like, more in-depth experience, we would pick a project they can do with data that we already have. So they're not involved in the data collection, but they are involved in, like, coming up with a research question and designing how to analyze it, and then they co-analyze it with a grad student and then they write it up and they submit it as a poster and their first author on the poster and I always kind of assumed that would be the best mark of like this was their project they didn't do all Mm -hmm. parts of it but they really were the like intellectual leader of it and they were involved in as many of the parts of it that they could be involved in um and it almost never turns into a paper if it did turn into a paper they would be an author on it maybe not first author but maybe if they were still around and willing to do a lot of the write-up um so I don't know yeah it's interesting because for me like seeing that a undergrad was a middle author on a paper where the first and last authors are like grad students and faculty I just wouldn't think anything of that it, it would count for very very little above and beyond knowing that they were in that lab and did research in the lab which I would presumably know without that publication um I think it would be different think- if it was like multiple undergrad first, second, and third. Let's say like it was like three undergrads and their first. Yeah. Second. Then I think I would give a lot of credit to the middle authors who are undergrads, if it was described as like a joint project where they all contributed a lot. Would you interpret an undergrad who's a middle author on the paper the same way as you would interpret a grad student who's a middle author on a paper? No, I think a grad student. I have less certainty about what it means, but like if it's an undergrad where they're like the only undergrad on the paper and they're in the middle and there's no other reason to think that they particularly did a lot, you know, um, I would just interpret that as like that lab has different norms Mm -hmm. than my lab, but I would assume they did about the same thing that most other people who are RAs in labs do. And again, if, if the letter of recommendation or the research statement really described something more than that, I would take that into account. But 
barring that kind of explanation, I would my default assumption would be to count it for almost nothing above and beyond the fact that they have research experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to think of. I'm sure there there are cases where there's like a paper and nothing else about it, but it's kind of a weird situation. Like I think most of the time, if if they are at any position on a paper as an author, there's some discussion of that in the statement or the letters or both. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's usually where I go to look for that context. Um, and yeah. yeah, I think it's a lot of this, it's, you know, it's really tough because a lot of this is a function of where they, what kind of institution they went to as an undergrad or what kind of place they worked after. Um, it's, it's, you know, as much a reflection of opportunities that they have or haven't had as it is of their sort of potential in the future. Um, and it's, you know, it, it can be tough to, to try to sort of parse that out. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I think if somebody hadn't done, didn't have a publication, but like they did an honors thesis or they had some other like, you know, interesting intellectual contribution and activity, um, I think I would probably care about that more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would also care more about um, the way that the person, so this sort of assumes that they get to the point where I would have a conversation with them. Um, but at that point, I care more about the way that somebody would talk about a project that they've been involved in than I guess like how their involvement is labeled. In my experience, like, you know, sometimes you'll talk to a graduate applicant about, you know, something that was their thesis or pretty big project for them. And their level of sort of understanding of that has varied a lot from, you know, not not really knowing much about what was done to like really, really having like a detailed understanding of what was done and having thought about it deeply and things like that. And so I think I, I weigh those kinds of conversations a lot more. But like I say, that's, that's only relevant once you get to that point where you're doing an interview or something. Yeah. Yeah. When I interview graduate students, I, I ask them to tell me about a research project they've worked on and, Mm -hmm. you know, I, yeah, it's, it's kind of similar. Like I want to hear how they talk about it and and can they talk about it at an intellectual level or are they just sort of reciting the tasks that they were given to do? And, and that, Mm -hmm. like you said, that you find the full spectrum for both non-authorship and authorship uh, um, like maybe there's a shift in the distribution, but you find people who weren't authors, but they can really talk in a sophisticated way about research that they worked on. And then you find people who maybe were, I think it's pretty rare that someone was like a first author, although it does happen, but like a first author on a journal article who can't speak intellectually about it, that would be a big red flag for me. Um, and certainly a middle author that would make me kind of discount that, uh, contribution. Yeah. I think I might even have a slight bias against, labs where uh their version of like giving extra attention to an undergrad is just sticking their name on a paper like i think the undergrad would benefit so much more if you think they're especially promising and you want to give them more experiences that'll help them get into grad school then i think there are better ways to do that than sticking them as a middle author on a paper they did very little on i mean it's not the undergrad's fault that that's how their lab goes about rewarding especially good research assistants, but I think it's not the best way to do it, even for pragmatic reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That publication what? will really help them later on, like when they're on the job market, having that 
filler publication might help them. It might help their H index and things like if the paper ends up getting cited a bunch, it'll help them. But I think for getting into grad school, I'm not sure a middle authorship really helps that much. So what do you think is for the labs that do this, that, that give people these sort of marginal or, or not very justified authorships? Like, what do you, I'm curious, because it sounds like none of us are those or at least yeah but i don't think we're representative at all yeah yeah so i'm curious like just speculatively like you know to me like i'm wondering like what's in it for them is it just a like well there's no cost or is it like this kind of ego empire building like look we've sent (laughs) our undergrads to the best institutions blah 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 like what do you think it is it might also be a way to recruit undergrads. This was more true at WashU than at Davis, but at WashU, I would sometimes have undergrads who were interviewing to be in my lab ask, like, "Will I get a publication out of this?" Hmm. Um, and so Whoa. I think if you can say, like, "Hey, if you work in our lab, at least you know," <laughs> like if you say, "If you make a one-year commitment to our lab, then like we'll put you as a co-author on a paper or something like that." I mean, I don't think it's that transactional, but I think it's seen as part of the package of what makes it appealing to undergrads, yeah, possibly. I could totally see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to blame undergrads for in the general case. I'm sure I know not, not even, I'm, I don't mean this, like there are, there are definitely people who are just like kind of more ambitious than sort of <laughs> integrity or whatever, like who do this kind of stuff in game systems. But I mean, I think in the modal case, it's just like somebody wants to go to grad school and they've heard this is important and they're yeah, coming in. Right. They don't, they don't even know what authorship means yet because right. they're still learning. And, and, you know, I mean, I know, yeah. like, yeah, I was this way as an undergrad. I, I asked my prospective advisor, like, well, I got a paper out of this and you know, this was the nineties and he sort of laughed and, and, you know, and I was like, okay, well, I just learned that well, like authorship is harder than I thought it was. That's fine. You know? Um, yeah. I blame the authorship model. I mean, this is a really, it's a completely reasonable expectation for an undergrad to say, if I work in your lab for a year, will I get some kind of credit I can list on my CV or mm-hmm. whatever? Like, will it be there in five years? Will I be able to point to something and say, this is what I did? I think this is one of the best arguments for contributorship model. Like, even if all they do for a year is something non-intellectual, a year of labor in a lab, even if it's just being told what to do and executing it, is something, and you should have something to show for it. Mm. When you guys say contributorship model, what exactly do you mean? Um, So, like, one example is the credit taxonomy, which is where you list all the people who contributed and what they can, you can, like, it's like a matrix, like, you can check different boxes of did they contribute to um, data analysis, did they contribute to conceptualization, did they contribute to writing, things like that. Um, And so you, so, like, the problem with authorship is that there have to be, like, necessary conditions for authorship or like things like that and some of them are ridiculous like in fact some of them that we've probably some papers we've probably been co-authors on at journals that subscribe to some of these authorship guidelines we almost for sure haven't met the authorship criteria in some cases or at least some of our co-authors haven't and so on I'm sure that's true for me so Mm -hmm. we're just blatantly violating the authorship guidelines all the time so then it's very hard to know what it means then it makes it okay for people to do stuff like adding gratuitous co-authors because look we're already breaking the rules so it really okay. like makes it very very fuzzy what it means to be an author and in a contributorship model a person's cv would have like all the papers they were involved with and the contribution that they made to each that's a good question yeah i, I assume there would be a way to like summarize which boxes were checked for you for each paper yeah okay 
And some places, like I think Plus One does this, where they have both authorship and contributorship. So there's authors, and then there's also a list of contributors and what they contributed, and those could be completely identical, or it could be, some people could be on one but not the other. I guess you can't okay. be an author but not a contributor, but you could be a contributor but not an author. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think the if if the world shifted to more of a contributorship model, do you think people would just start inflating and gaming that? Sure, but I think that there's less room for, uh, yeah, I definitely think people would, would, well, there would always be people who lie and then there would be people who like define the terms in a self-serving way. Um, Mm -hmm. There's also the question of like, should we specify how much of the writing, like if someone wrote like one sentence, do they check the writing box or should we have to specify like they did 10% of the writing or, and then that would get very complicated very fast. So I think there's a lot to be worked out and it certainly will be gamed for sure too. I just think there's a little bit less, at least it's like you could expect people to try to do it right. Whereas authorship, I feel like that's gone out the window. Like yeah. there's no way to expect people to follow the rules when we've been violating them all the time. Right. Yeah. And, and being an author on a paper at this point, I guess could mean anything from like you did literally everything to you helped collect some data and proofread right. the paper for spelling mistakes or something. Right. And I mean, also like right now it's ambiguous. Does an author endorse everything in the paper? Like yeah, right. that seems to be one of the minimal criteria for authorship is that you are responsible for what's in the paper. But what if I didn't look at the data? And so I don't know if my co-author yeah, yeah. may I've been have been in that situation many times. Or I don't agree with the conclusions or whatever else. So I think yeah. there's a lot of advantages even for the authors or contributors to a model where you can be more specific about what you take responsibility and credit for. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in the context of like, we're talking about undergrads applying to grad school, like in a lot of ways, that's what the letter of recommendation is for. Like, you know, when I'm writing a letter for someone who's worked in my lab, you know, I'm describing what they did on the studies, whether they were an author or not. Um, and I, I, most of the time when I read letters, that's, you know, that, that's what a good letter will do is, is actually describe what they did. Um, so where it's in a, in a funny way, we're kind of like narratively doing that already, but yet I guess because we have authorship and it's this like really strong signal, people are still trying to sort of push for that to go over that threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting because, too, when you read a letter, like, you know, I think when it's an undergrad, like, you know, it says, oh, they helped us refine the design for the study or whatever. Um, you know, I think a lot there's a lot of like nuance that goes into reading that. Like if if they weren't an author, but their their advisor is saying they helped us, you're like, OK, so they piped up at some lab meetings. That's awesome that their advisor thought that was good. But, you know, it's a it's a different thing than if if they ended up as an author on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, do either of you have any, anything else to add for the letter writer? Mm-hmm. Okay. No. All right. Well, thank you, Anonymous, uh, for your letter. And listeners, if you would like to email us, you can reach us. Our email address is letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Send us your feedback. Send us if that you have a, a letter you'd like us to read and respond to, a, a dilemma, a situation you're in. We, we love to get those letters and, and uh, 
often try to answer them, uh, sometimes better than other times. Um, and you can find us on Twitter. We're at BlackGoatPod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. Um, find us, rate us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. And that helps people find us. Um, so our main topic for today, uh, we wanted to talk about the GRE and its role in graduate admissions. Um, and there's this movement, which uh, some people have termed Grexit, G-R-E-X-I-T, which is sort of a funny choice of label because it's kind of following after Brexit, which is like this disaster that <laughs> didn't do what people wanted it to do. Um, uh, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, there. There was a letter writer that uh, sort of prompted us, because I think as a, like, throwaway a few episodes back, I said something like, oh, we could, I bet we could do a whole episode about Grexit. It must have come up in the context of something. Um, and so this letter writer uh, said, uh, please do. Um, and they specifically mentioned one program, uh, one graduate program that over recent application cycles went from uh asking for GREs to saying they're optional to saying don't send them to us. And so, you know, this one particular program transitioning and, and there have been, a, a, I think, a couple psychology programs that have that I'm aware of that have dropped the GRE. It's I've seen a lot of discussion online in biology and, and there's been, I think, much more sort of movement in that area around programs dropping the GRE. So we wanted to talk about it. We wanted to talk about kind of um, our perspective, uh, both, I think, uh, from a sort of people who, professors who admit graduate students' perspective, and also as psychologists who study things like reliability and validity and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, Yeah. So maybe we can start with uh, the arguments for the GRE, like why why are people using it? And, you know, if you were going to make the case in the year 2020 for using it, what is the argument for using it? Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, like, go ahead, Alexa. Uh, I was just thinking, so we tried to do a little bit of reading before before this episode. Um, and so we looked at a couple of things, some of which were... Um, like empirical papers and then others um, were more sort of like distal analyses of those papers. But one of the papers that we looked at was the Kunzel and Heslett 2007 paper um, looking at whether the GRE predicts graduate school performance. Um, And I've seen that paper and another paper by the same authors, I believe from maybe 2001, used as evidence both for and against um, the GRE being a good predictor of graduate school performance. And I think that the distinction comes down to, I guess, like what people think is a, a big correlation. Maybe it's more than that, but it seems like some people are looking at the same, um, at the same results and saying, like, see, this is great evidence that the GRE predicts performance. And then other people are using the exact same data, or at least data from the same papers, to say this is good evidence that the GRE doesn't I, predict performance well. I think it's both, like, yeah, interpreting the same magnitude correlation as big versus small, but also I think Kunzel and his co-authors often um, do two corrections. One is disattenuating for unreliability and one is correcting for um, restriction of range, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, right. I saw that. And so 
I could imagine some people are looking at the raw correlation, some people are looking at the corrected correlation, and that might be part of why they're drawing very different conclusions. Yeah, okay. maybe maybe right. we should say a bit about the this issue and why why that matters, right? So, you know, uh, Kunzel and and some other people they've published these meta analyses. Um, interestingly, they've also done meta analyses of things like letters of recommendation, which maybe we'll get to. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and typically the way, you know, the way people try to look at this, and this is, you know, in industrial organizational psychology, they deal with this a lot where they're studying these selection problems and how do you pick workers for a, for a business or whatever else. Um, and the, the problem is that you only have outcome data on the people you selected. And so, you know, if you could like, you know, with your omniscient powers like design the ultimate experiment to test a selection criterion you know you would like you'd hire everybody or or admit everybody and then see whether the people that had high scores did better than the, those that didn't but instead what they end up doing is among the people that are selected are there differences among um those who had high versus low scores and so that's where i think that you know the, these some of these statistical corrections come in um, and yeah, I, I've definitely seen people uh, who are critical of the GRE sort of floating some of the, and, and there are some less well done studies and often people will sort of repeat like an individual study that doesn't have corrections and often has a small sample size and so it didn't detect a significant effect, but, but maybe, you know, th th there was a problem with with that approach. And I think one of my favorite examples of, of the difficulties of this is that um, uh, if you look among NBA players at the correlation between height and performance measures like salary, like how much do expert mm -hmm. choosers of basketball players offer these people to play, it's a virtually zero correlation. Um, and it would be ridiculous to conclude from that that being tall doesn't help you at basketball. Uh, the, the conclusion instead is that getting into the NBA selects extremely efficiently on all the useful information in people's heights. And so by the time they get into the NBA, um, you know, you're not within the NBA, you're not differentiated on height because they're, they're all, you know, you've sort of restricted the range and, and you've used all the useful information and, and it's other things that are differentiating within that group. Um, but obviously like the NBA is taller than the general population. And there's a reason that, you know, if you were starting from a general population sample and trying to pick who to be on your basketball team, you'd probably want to pay at least some attention to height, right? And so this is this mm -hmm. is one of the challenges for doing this kind of work. But um, you know, so so IOPsych has long experience, um, and and in these meta analyses, you know, they do find you know validity correlations. They find that you know it's incremental above things like GPA. So that's I guess one of the arguments for the GRE, right? Is is when you when you do the analysis, quote unquote, right with large enough samples, et cetera. There's a correlation, and it's a, a correlation that people who specialize in selection would say is is you know non-trivial. Mm -hmm. Right. What are um, some other one thing that I've oh, always good uh, yeah I think I was gonna answer the question question that you were about to ask one thing that I've always seen and this is this is mostly speculative but I've always looked at the GRE as something that um, so I think we'll probably get into this um, later on but 
a lot of the criterion that we use to evaluate graduate student applicants mm-hmm. um, feels like it's really correlated with the basically like the privilege that you've had throughout your life and throughout your educational career. And so I've always imagined that um, somebody with uh, a ton of advantages and somebody with a ton of disadvantages might be like more fairly compared on the GRE, not that they're equated, right? Like clearly if you have like a lot of money to take GRE courses and you've gone to good schools, which have prepared you well to take the GRE and things like that, you're going to have an advantage. But I've always sort of imagined that, you're at least closer in your ability to sort of like prep for and take the GRE um, than you would be in some other domains. Like for instance, being able to go to a good school or get a good recommendation letter. Um, And so, I mean, that's one reason why I've seen the GRE and this isn't specific to the GRE. This would be true for, I guess, like any standardized test that was, um, was like a valid, reliable measure. Um, But that's, that's, I think, one one thing that I'll, I've always assumed is an advantage of the GRE. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you said any standardized test that's a valid and reliable measure, but that's a really high bar. And I think one mm-hmm. argument that people yes. who are pro-GRE make is that the ETS takes those things really, really seriously. And it would actually be quite hard to reinvent a new test that was as valid and reliable and free of bias. I mean, it's not completely free of bias, but... ETS, I think, takes quite seriously the issue of testing each individual item for its validity, its bias, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes in these discussions, I see people say, let's get rid of the GRE, but we do want to know people's, like, yeah. achievements, so we're going to measure it this other way. And I'm like, what? Right. Do you think you're going to do better than the ETS? And I mean, I'm sure some group could do better than the ETS, but it's not a trivial undertaking. I'm not saying the ETS is perfect, but... Um, I think people underestimate how much research goes into trying to make these standardized tests as good as possible. Yeah, well, maybe, I mean, this, this issue, I think, is, there's a few things that have come up. And, and, you know, um, and this is also one of the another one of those places where people argue in both directions, right? So the, you know, standardization has a couple of effects. One is at the decision making level, Standardization means you can make an apples to apples comparisons. You've got two numbers and you're you're comparing those and, and that's in some sense good. Um, other people will argue that uh, you know this is re- quote unquote reducing people to a number, et cetera, right? Um, so that that's one thing that kind of goes both ways. Um, I think the the question of of bias is a really complex one and, and maybe it's mm-hmm. one we should get into a little bit because Something that I see all the time in discussions about the GRE is people yeah. will cite group differences and call it bias. And that right. is um, so so there are documented group differences in SES um, in in uh, you know between racial groups in average scores. Um, and and this is a really difficult topic, I think, because one, it's it, taps into some really, uh, I think, um, challenging societal issues. Um, and, and two, it's at, from a technical level that, it, you know, the difference between group differences and bias, like from a testing point of, point of view, those are different things. But, um, 
you know, people sort of look at unequal outcomes or unequal scores and, and um, you know, the, the assumption is that that means bias. So maybe it's worth unpacking a little bit what bias does and doesn't mean. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, like from a, from a, you know, psychometric and technical perspective, bias means that there is, when you have, you know, bias scores for one group or another, it means there's systematic error. In other words, it means that the, you know, the scores mean different things for di- for members of the two different groups. Um, so and the measure itself is introducing systematic error, right? That's, yes, yes. The, yeah. the, or, or, right, that the interpretation of the measure is different for the two groups because, um, you know, yeah, the, the scores mean different things that, that people and, and the way that there are a couple ways this mm-hmm. is tested. One common way this is tested is predictive bias, where you see do people with the same scores on a measure achieve the same outcomes? Or do you find mm-hmm. that people with the same scores, some of them are over predicted or under predicted, or some of them are more accurately predicted or less accurately predicted? And that that would be evidence of bias that um, mm-hmm. two people that have the same score achieve different outcomes or flip that around. Two people that achieve the same outcome had different scores um, on average. And so that's, that's Especially where if that's related to group membership. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Right. When I say two people, I mean members of different groups. Yeah. So, you, so, so bias, you know, bias is, this is one of the things that's challenging about it is that bias is not just group differences. It's group differences relative to some, either a criterion, an outcome criterion, or some other, in, in a, another way that people look at bias is, is doing, you know, differential response where it's in relation to a latent distribution. Um, and that's where it's, it gets complicated because there is evidence of group differences, but there does not seem to be like robust evidence that there aren't nearly as many studies as there are validity studies, but to the extent that there are public studies of, of bias, there doesn't seem to be evidence that um, people with the same GRE score are achieving different outcomes who are members of different groups. Right. So there mm-hmm. are group differences in how well people do on the GRE, but that doesn't seem to be due to the GRE. And yeah, and this is the, so the argument that GRE proponents will make is that they'll say, we live in a society with vast, and this is the first part of this, I definitely agree with. And I think I agree with a fair amount of this all the way through. But the the first point is absolutely true, which is we live in a society with deep and corrosive inequalities in our educational system. People from different socioeconomic statuses, people from different racial groups, have different access to quality education, um, right. and and that I think that is true. And so so where GRE proponents will will then take that next is they'll say what that means is that you know the GRE is picking up on the consequences of those differences in in access to education. That it's it's you know um, it's like. I mean, I've seen this analogy, which I think is a little too glib, but the analogy is like it's like blaming your thermometer for having a fever, right? It's it's detecting the, the mm. underlying problem. It's not creating it. Um, and and so this that this is what the GRE proponents will say is is essentially like you know we've looked, we haven't found evidence of bias, um, and what and so where what these group differences are is that the the test is picking up on the consequences of social inequality. And I mean, what seems 
also likely tr- to be true to me is that if the jury is not creating those differences, it's not something about how the jury is written that's creating those differences, it's picking up on existing differences, then there's no reason to think this is specific to the GRE and that other yeah. tools won't also pick up on those differences. And I mean, when I hear people talk about, so just to reveal my position, I, I am in favor of the GRE. Um, when I hear people talk about how they want to like make a more holistic evaluation and not reduce people to numbers and blah, blah, blah. I mean, one thing I would want to say to them is to say, yeah. you might make the right decision. I don't even think that's true. But, you, yeah. but if you get rid of the GRE, you're letting all your bigoted, racist, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. make right. subjective yeah. decisions. And you don't think they're going to cre- recreate all those biases even worse than what the GRE is picking up on? Like, It's the same with like people who want to be able to use authors' identities in writing reviews or decision letters. It's like They think they're only going to use that information in a good way. I'm like, okay, even yeah. if that's true, what about all your other colleagues who have different values? Yeah you like. right and we already have measures like that and I think that or um parts of applications that are like that that so like for instance a recommendation letter is not reducing someone to a number it's like very different than a number and I don't know I mean I guess this is an empirical question but my my intuition is that recommendation letters are the least informative or maybe not the least informative, but certainly the most biased. They're like, they're almost intentionally biased. That's like the the purpose that they serve is that they're like, you know, somebody who's like deliberately advocating for the person. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I yeah. like, I think it sounds, it sounds nice to not reduce someone to a number, but there are big advantages to, having a number that can be compared to another number on what as equal a playing field as possible, I right. guess. And I mean, if I'm being charitable, I think what people might mean when they say they don't want to reduce people's numbers, they don't want to have like hard and fast criteria for like a GR, you, ha- you must have a GRE score above this, or if you have a yeah, GRE score right. this, you're automatically in. And I agree with that. And yeah. so like, if what they mean is we should be able to weigh other factors too, we should be able to have affirmative action. Absolutely. But there's nothing about including the GRE that precludes you from also having other factors weighing things like privilege or disadvantage or things like that. So yeah. I don't see why that gets lumped in with getting rid of the GRE. There's, there's a couple of different things in there mm-hmm. that I think are worth separating out. One is, is it just, do you just consider one or many factors? And that to me, I mean, I think there may be, like you might be able to find one or two schools that use like just use tests or predominantly use tests. But I, for the most part, I think that's a straw man. I think in certainly in the psychology PhD world that we, we operate in, I've never heard of a graduate program using just the GRE. And so, so to me, that's a bit of a straw man. The other, the other uh, something that's separable from that is whether to use judgment or a formula and that's something where there's actually, and this people hate this and it flies against their intuitions, but there's a very long tradition of research that formulas uh, produce more valid results than judgment. Um, and I think one of the, one of my favorite findings in this literature is, um, and it's very counterintuitive, is that, uh, and, and Robin Dawes wrote about this specifically in the context of graduate admissions, that if you take an admissions committee and you, you just look at their decisions, so you're not looking at an actual criterion and outcome of like, do people go on and do well, but you just look at their decisions um, what to admit or not admit. And, and then you create a regression equation where you predict the decisions from the quantitative information in the file. 
um, the so you so you're creating a model of the decision, not a model of the outcome. Mm-hmm. The model of the decision, so the model that reproduces the committee's decisions, will do a better job of predicting the outcomes than the committee's actual decisions. And it's totally counterintuitive because you think, well, a model is a like um, it, it, you know is like a a dim reflection of what the committee is doing, but the model is more reliable. The model is using, it's, ta- it's figuring out what weights do people assign to these things, but it's applying them more consistently. And there's just, there's a huge, long, century-long legacy of research showing that in clinical judgment and all kinds of judgment domains, formulas um, frequently outperform human judgment. And so... Is I'm that, not saying I'm not saying so, we should go purely with formulas. I've never gone that far, but that I, I do think that this this argument that like oh if I read a file I can judge it better. In addition to the bias question that Samin raised, that like if if you think of that not as like you personally, but as a policy decision that this is how we're going to do it in general, it introduces opportunities for bias. It also lowers validity, um, or there's mm-hmm. there's very good reason to think it'll lower validity as well. Yeah, I mean I was just gonna say like. My, I think I'm thinking of Nate Silver's argument about formulas versus judgment. And, and I thought that his, this is just one person's conclusion, but I thought his conclusion was sort of like, this is maybe a little cheap, but that both are better than one alone. Um, so maybe if you're like pitting, you have a choice between using a formula and just like using your own judgment in isolation from any kind of like calculating some score um, maybe you might favor the formula, um, but that like trying to move, remove judgment completely from decisions is not always advantageous, which I'm, I'm right, sure it's domain specific. And yeah, I think it's very domain specific. And if I remember right, I think Robin Dawson's book house of cards has some examples of cases where they give the experts the outcome of the formula and let them deviate from that. And at least in some domains, that's still worse. worse. Like, I think so, but I, I do think it must be very domain specific. Yeah. But I think the other thing is one, I mean, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, like another sympathy I have for people who say they want to use their own judgment is that it's not clear what we're trying to predict. In right. Predictions. And yeah. there should be some room for idiosyncrasies in the apprenticeship models. And maybe we should get rid of the apprenticeship models for grad school because they introduce all kinds of problems. But if it's going to be an advisor and a student working very, very closely together and not a lot of recourse for either of them, if that doesn't go well, that mm-hmm. to me is an argument for letting some idiosyncrasy, which is just another word for bias, creep in. Um, we have to keep that in check, of course, because if an advisor is like, I just don't work well with women or whatever, like that's <laughs> not okay. And I know some advisors who are like that. Um, but at, so like I can understand a little bit more in an apprenticeship model of graduate school, like why, even if we were absolutely convinced that formulas are the best way to go for predicting all the like objective outcomes we care about, that the subjectivity still, it's hard to let go of because this is a personal relationship that we have to also at least be able to tolerate for years. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think I think some of the other things that people want to use are potentially going into that, and some aren't. Right. So, right. Like, and and I think we should get to that that question of how important is matching and fit, and and what are we looking at? What should we looking? What should we be looking for? But maybe maybe before we get to that, we should just talk about some of the other things that people use. So we we talked about letters of rec, and and there is a a meta-analysis, there's not a ton of data, but based on the data that's there, they're not very good 
predictors, and to the extent that they are useful as predictors, this also contradicts people's intuitions. It's the ratings, not the narrative. Um, so like mm. everybody jokes about how like they're you know the ratings are ridiculous and whatever, but um, you know the the ratings are at least a little bit standardized, and maybe there's inflation, but there's like a little bit of signal coming through, but it's not very strong. Um, mm. uh, GPA is is also a good predictor, and I think this is where like using multiple factors, right? I think I think if I remember right from the meta analyses, the GPA and GR and standardized tests generally like each add sort of some distinct information. Um, you know, there I don't I haven't seen recent stuff on this. I know in in the seventies when Robin Dawes was studying this um, in his work, there was some evidence that undergraduate institution actually was a valid predictor. So he did one analysis where he used the US News uh, ranking. This was, Again, this was in the 1970s. Those things have been so gamed. I don't know how true this would be today. But he used the US News ranking and he showed that like you could get, get a little bit extra predictive power if you threw that into the formula. Um, uh, and which was, I think, raises a lot of complicated uh, issues, which, which when we talk about what we should be selecting for, which we should get to. Um, and then research experience, which we talked about a little bit earlier in response to the letter. Um, mm -hmm. Just if we're talking about unequal opportunity, man, mm -hmm. research experience, like that or for is... that matter, cost. Yeah. People talk about the cost of the GRE, but at least to, at the universities I've been at, most research experience students sign up for course credit in exchange for the research experience. So they're paying tuition money for that research experience. They're also, it's helping them fulfill the requirements for their major and so on. So it's not like it's money they wouldn't otherwise spend on tuition. But still, when people talk about cost of the GRE, they act like there's no cost to all the other parts of the application, like the mm -hmm. time and credit hours and other things you need to do to get to know a professor well enough to get a letter of rec, to be able to say that you worked in a lab for X semesters or whatever. Yeah, and, and yeah. so there's research experience that you pay for where you're ostensibly getting some educational benefit, which may or not may not be true. And then there's volunteer research experience, which, you know, there's been, I think, a lot of really important discussion in the business world about unpaid internships. And in fact, in the U.S., a lot of unpaid internships are illegal. Um, but they're they're only mm -hmm. illegal in the for-profit sector. They're not illegal for nonprofits. So... A lot of labs, a lot of university labs have unpaid volunteers working that if the, if you were doing the exact same work at, you know, Google's UX unit or Genentech or somewhere else, those positions would be illegal. And yet we, you know, and, and you know, they're, they're illegal because of labor laws. They're considered exploitative uh, labor. Mm -hmm. And yet... And I, I find that this to be really difficult because there, I think there is an argument that there, we're, we are providing some kind of educational benefit when students work in our lab. We're not just using them as labor, they're learning, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's really easy to talk yourself into, you know, overplaying like how much they're benefiting and underplaying how much you're benefiting. as. Well, it's are. hard because... Like at every institution I've been at, you don't get course credit for supervising undergraduate research. So in my lab, like because we have so many research assistants, we do treat it like a course. We have readings every week. There are reaction papers every week. We give them feedback. Mm -hmm. um, we have office hours, encourage them to come and talk to us and things like that. I do that because of the guilt of like, yeah, they're paying tuition money for this and we're getting research out of it. Um, 
but I have to like force myself to do that because my department doesn't incentivize it and pretty strongly de-incentivizes it. I wouldn't get in trouble if I made a third as much effort into making it an educational experience for them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think given how much we're getting out of it for free, we really ought to make sure we're treating it like a class where part of the homework is like doing research assistant type duties, but there should be all the other elements of a course too. Mm-hmm. So let's, I, I want to get to this question of like, that you raised, Samin, of what should we be selecting students for? Because I actually, yeah. to me, as I am, I will, if somebody raises a technical argument about the validity or bias in the GRE, I, yeah. will, I will happily argue with them. But sure. I, I have, I don't necessarily in the big picture, I have more complicated feelings about whether we should be using the GRE or how or whatever, because to me, the question of what we, what we should be selecting for is something that people just blast right past in order to start yeah. arguing about the GRE. And, you know, when you say, like, is it valid? You have to say, well, valid for what? Like, is it, does it right. predict outcomes? Well, what outcomes do you care about? Um, mm-hmm. And and those, it's hard because those are values questions. Those are not just technical scientific questions. And maybe that's why people are more comfortable arguing about, like, is a correlation of 0.28, yeah, you know, meaningful right. or not or whatever. Um, well, I think yeah. earlier on, Sanjay, you mentioned this argument in favor of the GRE, which is that it's just sort of mirroring societal inequalities. And I agree that is an argument in favor of the GRE as, like, or it doesn't damn the GRE in terms of its like validity or reliability. Um, and, but it's still like, if you're using a, a measure to select people who are, I guess like getting an education and opportunities that could advantage them in the future, that is just mirroring all of the inequality that they've experienced so far. Of course, like, that's not ideal. And I'm not saying that the solution is simple, but, um, but it seems like you're sort of avoiding the bigger picture. If you just say, well, um, you know, it's just, it's just an extension of the problems that already exist. So we can just sort of like, I think, but I think what they're saying, what people like me are saying, when we say the GRE is reflecting the biases that already exist is saying, just like every other part of the application and every other assessment tool, it hasn't eliminated the biases that accumulated in a person's life before they applied to grad school. So to me, what's, what makes it exonerating is not that all it is is mirroring the biases of society, is that every assessment tool that's not an affirmative action part of the process, every assessment piece of assessment is going to include those biases. At best, it might not add more biases on top of that. Right. So then I think it's, it's, it's saying there's a separate place for things like affirmative action, for things like recalibrating the playing field that's already uneven. But to say we're not going to use any tools that pick up on those existing inequalities, that leaves you with almost nothing. Like there almost are no tools to include then. So I, I have a couple of things. One, uh, just I, I want to. Uh, affirmative action is another complicated topic and it, it yeah. means different things and I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm probably using the wrong word. As yeah, a but anyway, so so I, I, it might be good to sort of like be careful around that term because I'm not, I don't, depending how it's implemented, but certainly the way it is under the law is not uh, sort of um, 
doing anyway. But but the, setting that aside, I think the 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 argument the that and this is going to sound. And I think this is a little bit what you're saying, Samin. And this is going to sound like clever wordsmithing, but this is actually to me a really important distinction that the the statement that the GRE reflects inequalities in society is a counter to the claim that it's biased. It is not an argument for the GRE. And the reason I think that's important is that I think if if we want to understand how to create a, a the, the admission system we want, we have to understand the technical side correctly. And we have to be, mm-hmm. you know, be, be accurate and, and whatever, and how we're using terms like bias and whatever. And we have to understand where these things come from, because that, we have to understand the problem right in order to address it. But the, you know, essentially what we're, if we say that's an argument for, then essentially what we're saying, yeah, is, is kind of, I think this is pretty much what Samin was saying, is that we're content to be another stage in the Matthew effect, that we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're content with right. the fact that graduate admissions is not only repeating, but amplifying, because this is, this is admitting people to get further training um, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that other people are not getting that further education. And so we're, you know, and that that's where it's just really challenging and difficult because I think the part of the reason the GRE is the focus of so much attention is because it's been studied so much. And the reason it's been studied so much is because it is standardized. It's a number and it's very amenable to quantitative analysis. And I, yeah, I, I'm very much in agreement that I... I have zero confidence that these other things that people are relying on when they read a file or whatever, the, the GPA mm-hmm. and research experience and letters of rec and their, their interpretation of the statement and all these other things. I have, I'm, I'm pretty sure that other than GPA, I'm pretty sure that none of those things are more valid. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that none of those things are less biased. And they might be more biased, and we just don't know because they haven't been studied as extensively. And so I think my biggest worry about Grexit and drop the GRE isn't like, oh, the GRE is great, we should keep it, whatever. It's that I I worry that mm-hmm. because it's become the focus of so much attention that people who don't understand, who aren't experts in psychometrics, who aren't experts in selection problems, who have the best of intentions are saying drop it because it's correlated with social inequality and that they can tell and that other things that are also correlated with social inequality and that might be actually introducing bias rather than just sort of reflecting it are the, are the things they're going to fall back on and use. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's I think that's what frustrates me the most in this debate is that people with really good intentions who say let's eliminate the most problematic part of the application and then they jump to the conclusion that's the GRE, when to me it seems very compelling that some of the other parts are way more problematic. Like, if you're going to start somewhere, I, the GRE wouldn't be in my top three of, like, what to fix or get rid of in the application. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the larger question of, like, what is what are we choosing people for? What's the, the point of selective admissions and graduate education, like... That's the that's the conversation we haven't had because I think that there's an underlying assumption that that sort of especially like outside of 
talking about group differences and social inequality, whatever, just when people think about admitting people to graduate programs, they, th you know, I think the underlying assumption is they want to pick the people who are going to succeed in graduate school. And by succeed, they mean do the conventional things that grad students are supposed mm -hmm. to do. publish the most. Uh, they're going right. to, you know, go on and get prestigious jobs. I think there's also, and I've seen, I feel like this has grown in the time that I've been around and you see it more and more that another criterion a lot of people have is they want someone who's going to be a good worker in their lab. And the, the admitting mm -hmm. PI is getting a direct benefit out of having good labor. And so, you know, and, and if you think of how you would do selection in a business, well, that's like, I think we mostly accept that, like, if you're hiring people to work in your factory or you're hiring people to, you know, to do whatever, that it's okay to want the best workers. Um, I think we have to pause when we're talking about education and ask, is that what we should be looking for out of an educational institution? Um, you know, and, and to me, this is clear, like in undergraduate admissions, right? Like why does the University of Oregon exist? Why should it be funded by the state? It, it's not necessarily to be like a spoils system for the people who've already had the most advantages. It's, it exists to provide opportunities to the public of Oregon. And I think that's a, like, that's a tougher argument to translate into the PhD level, but I think there is something to be said for the purpose of any educational institution is, you know, has a justice and equity component to it, that it's, it's to create not just like the, you know, take the people who've had the most advantages and give them even more, but it, that it's to create a representative scientific workforce, that it's to create a diverse scientific workforce. Um, I think that has to be part of it. I, I find this, a, an this is, and this is where usually my thinking just sort of grinds to a halt because I can't ignore the fact that like, of course, in selective admissions, we have to be admitting people who are going to be able to benefit from the training they've received. And that means they have to mm -hmm. have learned a certain amount up to that point, yada, yada, yada. And like, how do you solve this is really difficult. And part of it is that I feel like we're not having that conversation. So when I start asking myself that, I feel like I'm on my own because I haven't mm -hmm. seen people having that discussion, that sort of like values laden discussion about what is graduate education for and are, how serious are we? If we say we want an equitable and diverse workforce, how seriously are we going to put resources and incentives behind that? Yeah, that reminds me of a broader conversation about how should we should evaluate scientists in general and like getting beyond mm -hmm. citation impact and metrics like that. And I, I came up with the idea in a panel discussion I was on of like, it would be ideal, this is very fantasy, I don't know how to get there, but if we had something like a points over replacement player or whatever, value over replacement player that takes all of the contributions someone mm -hmm. makes, which includes like different perspectives that they might bring or a way in which they might inspire minority students to, you know, aim for bigger things or there's a lot of value they can bring like that, but also like if they harass or bully people, that should be a negative. And so like someone who gets cited a lot, Mm -hmm. even within citations there could be positive and negative kinds of citations like you're getting cited a lot because people think your paper was really terrible or whatever or harmful um so like if there was a way to capture all the pluses and minuses of the person existing in the field for that person for society for others in the field etc and that should include things like how 
they diversify the field, how they um, expand the way people think about it and who they bring into the field and things like that. But trying to measure all those things. Yeah. Tough. Well, it, it's hard because mm-hmm. when we talk about diversifying the field, a lot of a lot of the benefits of that are in the the potential to do things that we aren't counting right now, like the potential to ask questions it hasn't even occurred to the people in the field mm-hmm. or uh, to right. enough of the people in the field to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and that, and that also, so like, how do we measure that in a quantitative way? I, I, I'm not sure that that's possible. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I also feel like um, we don't know. It's sort of a catch 22, right? We don't know about the contribution that diversity can make until we have a more diverse field, right? So like right now, I think as diversity is introduced into graduate programs, um, if we're doing that slowly, like people who are, let's say, um, minorities within a graduate program don't feel like the program is suited to them or inclusive of them um, and perhaps don't perform as well as they could if the program were already more diverse. And so we have all of these obstacles to seeing how, seeing the contributions that diversity could make because there isn't enough diversity to accommodate diversity. Yeah, the effects of diversity could be very, very different in a diverse system. Right, <laughs> non-diverse. <laughs> yeah. Can can I say one more controversial thing before? I don't know if you guys have other things to add, but one thing I wanted to get in there is that I'm really worried that this Grexit thing is turning into a signaling tool that departments use to show mm-hmm. that they care about diversity instead of grappling with these harder questions of like, what do we want to select on? How do we want to factor in diversity, equity, inclusivity in our admissions? Like, I feel like like many things something that was a well-intentioned reform could easily turn into just like, oh, we can check that box and then people will know that we stand for diversity. Um, and it, in this case, I think it's a, th- a box that not only doesn't fix the problem, but might actually make things worse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really important, I mean, the, the larger question of like, how do we evaluate, you know, when, when someone changes their admissions procedures? And of course, one one challenge to doing that is that drop the GRE is a negative statement. It's, it's what you're not doing. So, so we don't actually know the you know, programs that are dropping the GRE. Are they just sort of incrementally weighting everything else more, or are they actually fundamentally changing how they think about admissions? I think oftentimes that's not very transparent. So that's one issue is, is like, if you're thinking of this as like, it's a causal inference question. And, and so one thing is that the treatment, the, the putative cause isn't defined. You know, another, another thing is that you know, we're going to have selective reporting, right? So programs that do this and become more diverse are going to advertise that and programs that do this and don't aren't. And so we're going to have cherry picked reporting. And then I think another possibility is like, if the if the larger goal is, let's say, a more diverse PhD workforce, the possibility that, you know, and it's, I think this is particularly true with the most selective, quote unquote, elite programs, that they're they're going to diversify, but they're going to admit students who would have gone to graduate school anyway at some other program. Uh, they're just going to be trading admits around the ones that drop the GRE and the ones that don't. One will get more diverse, one will get less diverse. I think that's a possibility. We just don't know. And to, so, to me, the like, if this is driven by a you know a societal goal to have a more diverse PhD workforce, that's the kind of larger question. 
And, you know, maybe if we see a mass movement, then we'll be able to track over some period of time. Is the, the workforce getting more diverse in the aggregate? Um, or is it just that some programs are Grexiting, some aren't, and they're trading who they admit? Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I agree that I think the, you know, the, the, these efforts, I think they're, you know, I think, th- I think the, the signaling thing is important. I think I, I don't want to undermine people's good intentions. I don't think you're trying to do that either, Samin. But, but I think that, you know, it's worth thinking about. Um, it's also a barrier to causal inference because it might attract more diverse applicants because they think, oh, this, for the reasons we were just talking about, that it, it you know, a lot of students, if, if they're the only member of their group or one of only a small number in a graduate program, they know that that's going to be you know, a difficult experience. And so they want to go to more diverse programs where they feel more included. And so, you know, so it could be the case that this, the, the, you know, the signaling works in some sense at, at those mm-hmm. programs that do it. Um, and I don't know, maybe that, maybe, maybe that's an upside because it actually creates a better experience for the students that, that go to those programs. It's, if it's correlated with other things that are actually better for them. Yeah. Like just a side effect, not actually an effect of dropping the jury, but an right. effect of using it right. as a signal for what you right. value. Yeah. yeah. Is that is that the way that the you guys would know this better than me? Is that the way that it's interpreted and intended as a, a signal of valuing diversity? I mean, I think being sort of maybe not being like exposed to the entire like Twitter debate on this, for instance, um, that wouldn't have been my first assumption that a school that drops the GRE is doing it be- in favor of diversity. I, um, so for all the reasons yeah. that you've mentioned, Samin, which is just that, like, it doesn't seem like the quickest way to diversify your um, your graduate student program. If if I had to guess, my guess would be that the the first movers are not necessarily trying to signal that they've they really care, but that there will be a sort of herd effect that other schools will be like, well, everyone else is doing it. I guess we got to do it too, and you know, let's make a showy announcement mm-hmm. that we're doing this so that everyone sees that we're doing it or whatever. That would be my guess, but I, I don't really know. But the thing that the the ones who really care, which I agree is most yeah. of them know, I think the thing that they really care about is diversity. Okay, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure, but I think that's the motivation behind the programs that are rethinking or dropping the GRE. Yeah, I, mean, okay. I can't imagine that anyone's going to drop it, announce it, and then not care if their program doesn't get more diverse. Like, I think that, I don't think that that's... I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm not cynical enough, um, but I don't, I don't think it's like that. Oh, I can think of one other motive. So individual faculty I know who just in their own admissions decisions say that they don't weigh the GRE. It, in some cases, it's not about diversity. It's about literally just wanting to be able to handpick the students they like for completely subjective idiosyncratic reasons. So it's like this kind of freedom, desire to have freedom to pick whoever you want for whatever reason you want and have no one telling you that it has to be you know, that you have to weigh this or that. Yeah. But that wouldn't, that wouldn't be an argument for not asking students to even report their GRE. Yeah. Well, maybe we should wrap this up. Um, yeah. I think uh, I'll, I'll be very interested, uh, listeners, those of you who are still with us, because uh, I know this is, it's an important issue. It's a controversial issue. It's an issue that people of good faith disagree on. Um, I'll be very interested uh, to hear from listeners what you all think uh, of how we've talked about the issue and also your own thoughts on it. Um, So if you've made it all the way through with us, thank you for listening. um, And uh, we will catch you next time. Bye.